Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. You hear the term fake news a lot today. Well, did you know it's nothing new? Now, maybe that term is new, but the fact that there's all kinds of false things out there is nothing new because Satan is the master counterfeiter. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at verses 6 and 7 of Colossians 2, where we're rooted and built up in Christ. We have received him, abounding with it in thanksgiving. And in verse 8, he says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Let's pray. God, we ask that you speak to us from your word, through your word, by your spirit, and that you would help people to see the danger of false teaching and and also the truth and blessings of what you've done for us through Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. If you were going to try to use any counterfeit money, I don't recommend it, but if you were going to try to use it, you would not go to the bank with Monopoly money, would you? Because that would look ridiculous. You could spot that a mile off. But a counterfeiter tries to make the the money look as real as possible, and it can fool a lot of us. And then we go to the bank, and you give that counterfeit bill to a teller, and they hold it up in the light and don't see the marks that it's supposed to have. And they say, I'm sorry, this is a bogus. It's fake. It's not real. You've lost some money. Well, that's a bad thing, and I hope you never get taken that way. But I want to tell you something that's far worse, and that is when somebody is deceived by false religion because then they lose their eternal life they don't lose money they lose eternal life satan being the master counterfeiter that he is is going to make this false religion and false teaching look as close to the real thing as possible he speaks about jesus christ he will use christian and biblical terminology He will have a Christian morality. He will promote good works and family values. But when they present the human way of salvation and deny the deity and the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, that's when you know it's not real. 
So it looks good on the surface. And there are a lot of people who will be part of a church or part of a religion that looks good, but when it comes right down to it, it's false. It's not based on Jesus Christ. That is what Paul was combating in Colossae. They would use Christian terminology, but they would blend Judaic and Greek thought with it. And it was very susceptible. The Christians there were very susceptible. They didn't have the New Testament completed like we do. And so it was easy to fool them. Somebody could come in and say, well, it's this and that. Paul begins to warn them. He said, there's some things that are non-negotiable when it comes to your faith in Christ. There's no negotiation here. There's no exception to it. And with that in mind, I want us to talk about how Satan is still counterfeiting even today. And you can be taken if you're not careful. Not that you're going to lose your salvation, but you can be drawn off track, off the path that God has for you. Let's look at this today. I call it avoiding spiritual abduction. And the first thing I want you to see is what I've called the danger of incorrect teaching. The word translated beware in verse 8 means to look out. And it's present tense, which means continually look out. Have you ever gone into one of those haunted houses or spook houses or, you know, and, and you, you go in there, you know, you pay to be scared. And that doesn't make any sense, does it? You pay somebody to go in and scare the daylights out of you. Well, when you walk through that house, you are beware. You are looking out. You're on guard. That's the picture here. Be on guard. Everything needs to be looked at. Paul warned, and it's recorded in Acts 20, verse 29. He said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Max Lucado gives a chilling example He writes, no one ever expected it would happen the first time. Especially with this church, it was the model congregation. A heated swimming pool was made available for underprivileged kids. Horses were provided for inner city children to ride. The church gave scholarships, provided housing for senior citizens. It even had an animal shelter and a medical facility, an outpatient care facility, and a drug rehabilitation program. Walter Mondale wrote that the pastor was, quote, an inspiration to us all, end of quote. The Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare cited the pastor's outstanding contribution. We are told he knew how to inspire hope. He was committed to people in need. He counseled prisoners and juvenile delinquents. He started a job placement center. He opened rest homes from, and homes for the retarded. He had a health clinic. He organized a vocational training center. He provided free legal aid. He founded a community center. He preached about God. He even claimed to cast out demons, do miracles, and heal. Lofty words, a lengthy resume for what appears to be a mighty spiritual leader and his church. Where is that congregation today? The church is dead, literally. 
Death occurred the day the pastor called the member to the pavilion. They heard his hypnotic voice over the speaker system, and from all corners they came. He sat in a large chair and spoke in a handheld microphone about the beauty of death and the certainty that they would meet again. The people were surrounded by armed guards. A vat of cyanide-laced Kool-Aid was brought out. Most of the cult members drank the poison with no resistance. Those who did resist were forced to drink. All was calm for a few minutes, then the convulsions began. Screams filled the Guyana sky. Mass confusion broke out. In a few minutes, it was over. The members of the People's Temple Christian Church were all dead, all 780 of them, and also the leader, Jim Jones. Now you say, well, that'll never happen to me. Well, folks, I hope it never happens because that means that you quit looking at the truth of the word of God. And one thing I appreciate about this congregation is that you want to hear from the word of God. But I want to tell you something. One of the most disturbing things I read this week was by the Barna Research Group on one of their websites. Barna Research Group is a Christian research organization And they've been tracking the beliefs of people's biblical worldview since 1995. And in a survey done just five years ago in July of 2015, they discovered that 17%, of practicing Christians have a biblical worldview. That means 83% of practicing Christians don't. Now, what is they, how do they define a biblical worldview? They're, they're, here's their definition of a biblical worldview. They believe that absolute moral truth exists. They believe the Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches. Belief that Satan is considered to be a real being or force, not merely symbolic, A person cannot earn their way to heaven by trying to do good works or be good. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth and God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. 17%, according to the survey of 1,066 adults over the age of 18, and what they call practicing religion, they practicing Christianity, you had to come to church at least once a month. But 17% had a biblical worldview. Now folks, it's happening to our nation. People are being deceived. They are adding all kinds of new philosophies and things to their walk with God. And so it's not if it's going to happen, it's already happening. It's also interesting that in that survey, the majority of what they called elders, that's the generation before the boomers, the elders, I'm a boomer, I'm on the tail end of the boomers. The elders and the boomers, most of them, the majority of them, practicing Christians had a biblical worldview. But where it really tails off is the generations following. And I'm not faulting anybody, I'm just telling you what the survey shows. So, when, it, when Paul says beware, look out, two things you need to look for. First of all, 
is spiritual kidnapping is what I call it. It doesn't mean that you're going to lose your salvation. Nothing can snatch you out of the hand of God. Amen? But you can be led astray. You can be deceived, spiritually kidnapped. The word is cheat you or capped. Don't let anybody plunder you or capture you. The idea of taking captives and plundering a nation, that's the picture here. Don't let anybody plunder you. Galatians chapter 1 Paul was worried about the Christians in Galatia going back to the old ways and falling prey to the, the former way of life. He said in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. When cults, and cults are those who don't believe that Jesus is God, they, they have got a faulty view of Christ. You know where they recruit? Churches. They don't go after people who don't go to church. They go after people who have some kind of spiritual interest, but who are not very strong in their faith. And they kidnap people. Not literally, but spiritually lead them astray. Don't be one of those statistics. How do they do it? How do you get spiritually kidnapped? Well, it comes from what I call spurious knowledge, false, fake, false teaching. And you know what's surprising is that this false teaching doesn't just come from non-religious sources. I'm going to give you an example, true example. A well-known Christian preacher, I'm not going to name him, on television was telling his audience that the key to Christian victory was to, quote, speak the truth. That sounds good, doesn't it? And for proof, he turned to Numbers 14, 28, which says, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. So he repeated those words, had the people repeat them over and over to prove the principle he was proclaiming. Just say it, God will do it. Name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but if you read the passage in Numbers 14, you're going to find that what this man did was had a teaching and he looked for a biblical text to go along with it instead of teaching from the Bible. There's a difference in proof texting or taking a scripture out of context and making it fit what you already want to say and teaching the word of God. Because when you go to Numbers 14, 28, you're going to find that the passage was right where the Israelites refused to go into the promised land. They disobeyed God and God got angry and God was thinking about just wiping them out. And Moses interceded for the people. And then God said, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In the desert, your bodies will fall, every one of you, 20 years old or more. We're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. And God said, yeah, that's what's going to happen to you. Sitting there in a principle, he was giving a punishment. But what I wanted you to see is that just because somebody quotes scripture, does it mean it's accurate? 
And you need to be real careful when you go to the Old Testament pulling out one verse that may have been written to the children of Israel. There may be a principle there that you can claim, but you can't go. I mean, if you're going to do that, then none of us would be alive because it says in the Old Testament to stone rebellious teenagers. <laughs> we would have all been dead by now. False teaching. There's several characteristics mentioned here. First of all is earthly philosophy. The word philosophy is the only time it's used is right here in Colossians in the New Testament. And this philosophy, you know, the word philosophy means love of wisdom. So everybody has a philosophy. Did you know you have one? You, you do. You have a philosophy. You're living by a, your philosophy. It can be good or bad. But this this philosophy is based on the traditions of man, it says. Empty, based on the traditions of man. Earthly philosophy is dangerous because it takes man's traditions and feelings and thoughts and makes it equal to God's truth. We know what traditions are. You have traditions. They're not necessarily bad, but traditions, when they began to interfere with God's truth. See, one, one of the things that I have a problem with, I have problems with the Catholics. It's because they believe in inspired tradition as well as inspired truth. I don't. I believe traditions are traditions. They're not inspired by God like the word of God is. But they hold on to that, and so that's why it's always changing. And I'm not being critical. I'm just telling you I don't agree with that concept, with earthly philosophy. Jesus even told the Pharisees in Mark 7, 8, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to, through, to the traditions of of men. Any philosophy that is derived from the mind of man instead of the mind of God is going to have holes and inconsistencies in it. Lost people do not understand Christianity. They don't. I always pick on Hollywood, but, but you, you tell me one, one Hollywood show not, not done or done if a Christian group does it, it's going to be accurate probably, sometimes. Depends on what Christian group did it. But for the most part, Hollywood, when they depict religion or Christianity or preachers or Christians, they're never accurate. You know why? Because they don't understand it. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned or appraised. The ways of God don't make sense to lost people. Now those of us who've accepted Christ, they make perfect sense. The scripture makes sense. It's all by faith in Jesus Christ. It's easy to do whatever you think and feels right today, but God says differently. And how much do you see today when people say, well... Isn't it amazing how the decisions that are made are just don't have any common sense to them anymore? I mean, we're living in a day and age where, you know, the thing. <laughs> that was ugly. I shouldn't have done that. But, but I did. You know what I'm talking about? Look at the world. 
I better move on. <laughs> the second characteristic is empty pretense, deceit. The word deceit, false, fraud, a trick. The philosophy of the Colossian false teacher sounded good and seduced the minds of those who deceived it, but it was an illusion. People fall for anything today. Folks, you do know, you do know that just because it's on the internet, it doesn't make it true. Please tell me you know that. Because you can deceive people. Oh my goodness. You can, you can manipulate pictures. You can manipulate whatever you want to make it appear to be true. But you know, a lot of people fall for deception. And one of the biggest deceptions that people fall for is that life is all about being happy. And so with that philosophy and that deception, people make decisions on base being happy. If I don't like this, I'm not happy. So I don't want to do this. What does God want? God wants you to love him and to be holy. Now along the way, there's going to be some happiness. But all your circumstances aren't happy. Have y'all just been extremely happy the last two months? You know, it lasted for about three hours for me. <laughs> but the joy of the Lord didn't leave, did it? But there's a difference. See, joy comes from the Lord. Happiness is based on your circumstances, but people believe that deception. People are so deceived today. There are not many survivors of World War II left. Some of you are descendants from those who fought in World War II. But did you know, deception helped turn the tide in World War II in a good way. Nazi-occupied France became part of the fortress Europe, and in order to win, the Allied forces had to take back Europe. And Operation Overlord was the name of the battle plan that culminated on June the 6th, 1944, D-Day as we call it, and that's coming up before too long, when 155,000 Allied troops went ashore to all that blistering resistance and 5,000 men lost their lives that day. Now, the casualties would have been much higher had not something else taken place. For you see, it was called Operation Fortitude. The Allies spent several months trying to convince the Nazis that the attack would take place at the most narrow part of the English Channel between Britain and France. It's called the Poche de Calais, the narrowest part. The Allies created a radio traffic uh, they created radio traffic, giving orders to a mythical first U.S. Army group under the command of General George Patton because they knew the Germans were listening. And to fool the German reconnaissance airplanes, hundreds of decoy tanks made of plywood and inflatable rubber were placed all over the place, staged around Dover. Real-looking aircraft replicas made of canvas were parked on runways. Plywood barracks were constructed. All of this in an effort to persuade the Germans to keep their eyes on the Poche de Calais instead of Normandy. 
and the deception worked because long after June the 6th, when D-Day happened, Hitler remained convinced that Normandy was a diversionary tactic trying to get him to move his troops away from the Poste de Calais. He had 18 divisions in readiness there and he kept them there till the end of July, which allowed the Allied forces to advance and to take Europe or to, to win. You see, that was a good way, but it was still deception. Fake tanks, fake airplanes, fake barracks, fake troops, fake radio signals. Well, Satan does that spiritually speaking. He is the minister of deception, the sinister minister of deception. In John 8, Jesus revealed the true nature. He said he is a liar and the father of lies. Anytime somebody says they're a Christian, ask them, I am so glad to hear that. Would you tell me about when you came to know Jesus? I love to hear people's testimony. You'll find out if they're really believers or not. Oh, well, I've always been a Christian. I was, you know, my parents were Christians and I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't always been a Christian. There comes a time when you choose to follow Jesus. Just because you were baptized or sprinkled or dedicated as a baby didn't make you a Christian. The third characteristic here is a real controversial, it's a difficult phrase, the elementary principles that are there. Some commentators believe that it deals with demons and, and spirits and angels and the common elements and because he mentions principalities and all. But though actually the word elementary principles means all in a row, ABCs, one, two, three, all in a row. I personally believe that Paul is referring to going back to the elementary things of religion and now that you've known Jesus Christ, why would you go back to any kind of legalism or things like that because the rest of this chapter is going to talk about some of that. And it's almost like in a sarcastic way, you and I would say it this way, now that you've received a PhD, why in the world would you go back to kindergarten? And yet, that's what people will try to get you to do. You know, we just need to get back to the simple, you do this and you don't do this and you do this and you don't do that. And Paul is saying, but you have freedom in Jesus Christ. All of this false teaching, they're going to add something to Christ because it says in verse eight, and not according to Christ. So my friends, the false teaching, the danger of this false teaching You've got to be on guard for this. Don't ever take anything I say without comparing it to the scripture. I will tell you my opinion when it's my opinion. And most of my opinions are, are right. <laughs> but I will tell you when it's my opinion, just like this elementary principles. But you need to compare everything that's said on television, everything that's taught you, by the truth of God's word. Which leads to the second part. You find Paul going on to, I think, give a defense, what I call of irrefutable truth. 
He makes three assertions about the sufficiency of Jesus, and they all fall in the little phrase, in him. The first one talks about the sufficiency of Christ himself and who he is, and the second and third talk about the sufficiency of what we enjoy because of our faith and our connection to him. So let's look at it quickly. The first talks about the sufficiency of Jesus or the deity of Christ in verse 9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If you don't have that underlined, underline that verse in your Bible. It is the most definitive statement of Jesus Christ's deity in all the New Testament. It's the only place the word deity is used in the New Testament. It's the place where anybody that tells you that Jesus is not God, they're going to have to somehow mark this out or tear this page out because this verse states exactly that. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, you see it echoed, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. But here verse 9 comes out even stronger that says God dwells in Christ bodily. Amen. Totally. And the word fullness means that in every sense of the word, not just God's thoughts or not just God's attributes, but all the essence of God is now in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And when we say that he is God in the flesh, God incarnate, totally God, totally man, this is what we mean. He's God. No other religion. They may have some prophets, but none of them are God. And we don't pray to the same God as everybody else. And the word dwells is present tense, which means it still dwells in him. The incarnation is still in play. He is still God. In him you will find God. Isn't it amazing that people look for God in all the wrong places when he is found in Jesus Christ alone? Amen. First John, excuse me, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and the dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I want you to underline something else, verse 10. And you are complete in him. There's nothing lacking in your salvation. Amen? Amen? You don't start and then get it later. God pours his love and power into your life, giving you the full dose of salvation, the full life, readying you for the life to come. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, Man was in a state of incompleteness. His spirit died, his soul began to die, his mind, emotions, and will progressively ultimately died in his body. We were incomplete, separated from him. Today, man is incomplete spiritually because he's totally out of fellowship with God. He's incomplete morally because he lives outside of God's will. And he is incomplete mentally because he does not know ultimate truth. And look at our society and you see all of that. And people are looking for something to fill that emptiness. So what do they put in there? All the stuff that's been put on hold because of this COVID-19 All of a sudden, people find themselves empty. Now what do I do? I don't have any sports. 
I don't have any pleasure. I don't, I don't have any stuff to buy. I'm not making any money. I'm, there's no movies to go to. There's, I don't know what it is. But then, then think of this. Why? Why do people destroy their lives with stuff like alcohol and drugs? It's because they're empty. There's nothing there. But when you turn from your sin and you realize how empty you are and you've got no hope and you find out that God loves you, that God created you, knows your name, and you ask God to forgive you of your sin, and we're going to talk about that next week, and you talk about good. Oh, I can hardly wait. You talk about the forgiveness of God. It's awesome. He wants to forgive you, and he does. And, and Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. See, I'm one of those who has a biblical worldview. He lived a sinless life. And when he went to the cross willingly to make atonement as the sinless lamb of God, God put on him the sin of us all and he died. The wages of sin is death. He died, but he rose again. And, and when you believe in your heart, that means you know, God, I know Jesus is him. I know that. I'm going to give you my life. I commit my life to you, and he comes into your life. His spirit lives in you, and all of a sudden, your spirit is made alive. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, your mind, emotions, and will begin to change too because now you have a live spirit in you, his spirit. And he's made your spirit alive. And ultimately, we're going to get a new body because this one, we don't want this one forever. And when you were born into this world, and some of you, that was a long time ago, <laughs> getting longer by the day for me. When we were born into this world, did you come into the world with everything on your body that you needed I'm not talking about adding to it over the years. <laughs> I'm talking about, you weren't like a tadpole. You didn't grow arms and legs later, did you? No, you came in complete. Now, you didn't know how to use it all. You had to be taught how to use it all. But you were complete. When you come to know Jesus, you are complete in him. Now, you begin to grow and learn how to use it all, but, but you got everything, every last thing you needed for salvation when you committed your life to Jesus. That's awesome. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have it all in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way. No one else has done what Jesus has done. There is no one else who is like Jesus. He's not just a great man and a great teacher and a great philosopher, a great prophet. He's God, second person of the Godhead. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're not, we're not uh, we don't believe in many gods. We believe in one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all one. 
Paul also mentions the deliverance of Christ in verses 10 through 12. You know what you are in Christ? You're free from condemnation. You're free from guilt. You're free from fear. You're free from sin. But if you look any other place, you're going to wind up in slavery again. There are two truths mentioned here. Both of them, Paul uses external symbols to illustrate an internal truth here. I want you to see this. I'm going to try not to create too many questions for those younger ears. The first truth is that you are purified from sin, and he uses the, the, um, the symbol of circumcision. Your old life has been cut away. Now, circumcision was only the outward demonstration that man was born sinful and needed cleansing. The cutting away was a graphic way to demonstrate that man needed cleansing at the deepest level of his being. Jewish males were circumcised as a sign of the Jews' covenant with God in Genesis 17. Circumcision was an expression of Israel's national identity and was a requirement for all Jewish men. But this verse says that in Christ, the body of flesh is removed. And the word putting off or removal is used to take off clothing and putting it away. A total break from something. In Christ, there has been a removal of the sinful flesh. It's been done away with. It has died. It's been cut away. Another way to look at it is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, old things have become new. But there were a group of people, probably some of the Jewish converts were saying, well, you know, now if you come to Christ, you have to be circumcised. And Paul is saying, it's not that outward thing that saves you. You have been, in verse 11, circumcision with, made without hands. Spiritually speaking, the body of flesh there refers to the sinful fallen nature dominated by sin before salvation. In fact, Paul expresses it so well in Philippians 3.3 when he says, we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Would you indicate by nodding that you understand what I'm talking about here? Thank you. Most of you got it. Some of you are just sleepy. We've been purified from sin through Jesus Christ. No outward thing. The second symbol that's used here talks about the power over sin. Baptism. Buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Folks, you need to understand that baptism occurs after conversion. Every example given in the Bible of someone being baptized, the only exception is Christ. 
always came, baptism always came after his or her profession of Christ or in conversion. You check it out yourself. Every time somebody was saved, then they were baptized. Baptism, it pictures a believer's union with Christ. We've been buried with him in baptism. At salvation, the spiritual union of the believer with Christ takes place. At the moment of salvation, a believer is buried with Christ. I, I put it this way, when you, when you come to God and you ask him to forgive you and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God immerses you, spiritually speaking, with the forgiveness and with the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't just sprinkle it a little on you. He immerses you with salvation. Baptism shows the burial of the old way of life. So what does the rest of baptism recognize and symbolize? That you now have a new life in Christ. And the word working in verse 12 comes from the Greek word that we get our word energy from. It refers to God's active power. Listen to this. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that saved you and lives in you. So the picture here, it's not, when you put water in the baptistry, I can dunk you till you look like a prune and it won't save you. And I'm not being, I don't mean to sound silly about it, but you'll notice faith through faith in the working of God. I am saved by faith in Jesus Christ. I am obedient when I'm baptized. Baptism doesn't save you, it's not optional. In fact, it's the one way to profess to the world. Jesus has taken away my sin. I have died with him. I've been buried with him in my sin and I've been raised in him to walk in newness of life. You've been cleansed and no longer does sin have dominance over you. Sin can't make you do anything. Satan can't make you do anything. It's still, it's still around. Yeah, it's still there. But you have power over sin. You don't have to do it. You don't have to. God's power in you has delivered you from that. Now, we believe that the Bible teaches that baptism is only for those who've been, who have faith in Jesus Christ. And the biblical order is conversion first, then baptism. A baptism prior to conversion, regardless of the mode or the intent, does not follow the biblical order. When I was a little boy, I made a commitment I was smart enough to know the difference between heaven and hell and I wanted to go to heaven and I associated that with being baptized and I'm sure that as a five or six year old being in a preacher's home, I answered all the questions right. But I didn't understand until I was a preteen what a commitment to Christ was and 
how I'd been forgiven of sin. And so I was really afraid the night at boys camp. If I gave my life to Jesus, I thought, what are people going to say? I've already been baptized as a little boy. I'm a church member. But I gave my life to Christ, and then I didn't care what people thought. I said, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to get it in the right order. And so I told my dad, my mom, I said, I've given my life to Jesus, and this time I know it's for real. And I'd like to be baptized. And so I was dunked the first time. I was baptized the second time. And there's a difference. And some of you are wondering, what's the, what's the big deal about, I mean, why are you hung up on being baptized? Have you ever seen anybody upset in this room when people were baptized? I've seen nothing but joy and cheering, excitement. Listen, when you follow Jesus, you want people to know. And Jesus said, you profess me before men, I'll profess you before my Father. The public profession of your faith is baptism. But you've got to be saved first. And for those of you who've never been saved, i got some great news for you. You can give your life to Jesus today. The Holy Spirit's already speaking to your heart. I know that because I never get ahead of him. He's always there speaking to someone's heart. And some of you may realize today that you're still empty. Yeah, you're a religious person and you go to church and you've done all that stuff that they do ritual-wise, but God didn't give us a ritual. He gave us a relationship with him. And that is through Jesus. And if you don't know him, you can know him today. You turn from your sin Say, Lord, I understand now I'm lost. I'm empty. And today I ask you to forgive me of my sin because of what Jesus did. And I believe Jesus died for my sin. I believe he rose again for my sin, conquering my sin. And I believe he's the only way to heaven. And Lord Jesus, I commit my life to you. And I invite you into my life right now. However you say that, however you make that commitment, you can do that right now. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord, right now, I pray for those that need to come to Christ, that they would come to you right now. Confessing their sin to you, seeking forgiveness, inviting Jesus into their life. I pray for believers who may need to think, make things right with you. I pray for those who need to be baptized. I pray for those who need a church home. I pray for those you're calling to special service of some kind to the mission field. And so, Lord, we ask that you bring people to you right now, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.